Daddy! Wipe my butt! <laughs> Stop uh, playing uh, Donkey Kong! I'm gonna get the high score. I'm gonna I'm gonna break the record. You want you wanna watch Daddy break the record? Wipe my butt! <laughs> right. So our, our dramatic reenactment. <laughs> yes, yes, of um Conrad and, and Eric Cartman. Uh, so <laughs> that's probably what they think if they saw us in real life as well. They go, there's Conrad and there's Eric Cartman. <laughs> um, right, so here we are with The King of Kong, a podcast. That's not the name of the podcast that we do. It's called The Spin-Off Doctors. I'm Jim Sterling. This is Conrad Zimmerman. This Hello. isn't The King of Kong. If you've tuned in expecting to watch The King of Kong, I don't know how you made that mistake. I we have some very don't. unfortunate news for you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're in for a bad time, unfortunately, because you got to listen to these lovely boys talk about the King of Kong, a fistful of quarters, which I imagine would hurt. So that's a movie about arcade gamers and Billy Mitchell well, and Steve Weeby. And specifically competitive arcade gamers, because you could certainly, and I, I'm sure there have, uh, and I, I, I'm sure I've watched them, there have been documentaries that have covered the arcade phenomenon writ large, but this is specifically about competitive uh, and 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 Donkey Kong in particular. Donkey uh, Kong in particular, because the, the name of the, the podcast... No, the movie now. We're talking about the movie, not the podcast anymore. The name of the movie is called King of Kong. Right. So it's about Donkey Kong. Right, it's a, it's a it's a reference to Donkey Kong, and and in many ways, uh, you know, the the race to a million point score in that yes. game. Yes, um, but but before we get too far into that, I do have to bring up the kid's voice is funny, but it does look a bit like child abuse. Oh no, you're you're right. I mean, th- it's uncomfortable. Like you laugh initially because you hear "wipe my butt," and that's just funny. Just yelling "wipe my butt," like. It poo on a bum hole. That's that's always a giggle. But as he just ignores the child while it cries and needs an ass wiping. Yeah, no, I mean it's uncomfortable. It was it was awkward rewatching it, and and I, in my mind over the years, because it's been a couple of years. I've seen it a few times. It's been a few years. It transformed in my mind to become more and more ludicrous to the point, you know, where but. Rewatching it, I'm like, oh, that, and it always was a little bit. Oh, it's like you can you can laugh because of just the ludicrousness of it, but then you stop and think about it in a sober moment, and you're like, this isn't this this doesn't. It's not a good look. No, it's not like, a good look. Like most of the movies that we watch that um, appear on the surface to be largely, you know lighthearted if not positive in some respect there's a dark undercurrent that kind of runs through this uh, about yeah. obsession and uh, the drive to complete goals and what you sacrifice in the process and and possibly the people that you're hurting and I, that's a very serious element to this that it's not not a lot of time and attention is devoted to it I think that the the filmmakers very sort of skillfully put, a few things in there to make you sort of really kind of reflect about how important this is in relation to the rest of their lives. Yeah, especially because the movie, 
uh, does fudge a few things. It does. And, and it really wasn't that important in that video because, uh, at least uh, according to the, the read-ups, he was, a, he was the title holder at the time. He was just yeah. going for more. Um, also, you know, the movie plays up that Billy Mitchell doesn't want to ever meet Steve Wiebe, but fails to point out they did meet once already. Yeah, they had there's a, met. There's, there are a bunch of, I mean, you, you, what, 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 uh, truth enhancements. Yes. Well, <laughs> we talked you... about this a lot on the version of this podcast that isn't out because the recording messed up. But the we, we talk a lot about editing. Uh, yeah. And I talk a lot about it. I've talked about it in the Jimquisition before and, and how powerful editing can be. And, and you know, there's there's a form of wizardry, sorcery going on where you, you can get the raw footage and make it tell a lot of different stories. Uh, you can take the same bit of footage to make someone look really great or someone look really bad given enough footage. And, of course, documentarians are filming so much. They get so much material. You can suck out the the good aspects of someone and turn them into a, a a villain a monster and as far as Billy Mitchell goes the central conflicting character it's hard to tell because clearly his negatives are fully accentuated in the movie and he's got to have some positive surely but yeah. he's given opportunities in this movie to show himself as a decent person, as a as the better man. Uh, but he never takes that route. He never takes an option like that. And he is... He is sincerely arrogant. There is undeniable... That's undeniable. Uh, I mean, I think that there are a couple of instances, and, and, you know, and, and there's been some dispute. Uh, Mitchell has said in interviews, uh, there's a specific point in the film that a lot of people call him out for, um, that being when he and Weeby do actually cross paths. Um, and, and we'll probably get into that in a little more detail later. But he has some disputes about how that was presented in the film um, and and what happened from his perspective. Yeah. Well, I mean, if I recall correctly, and this is going way back to, I think, you know, 2007 or whenever it came out, uh, he filed a lawsuit against the filmmakers, or at least some, something similar, uh, for, you know, a, a slanderous representation. He felt like they, they misportrayed him. Uh, I don't think it went anywhere. Well, I, uh, I think... But then he tried to sue regular show once because they had a, a cartoon giant head that looked a bit like him. And, yeah, and, I think what ultimately resulted from that is that it was determined that his life rights are, are owned by the producers of this film. And there's really <laughs> oh, that yeah. makes me shudder. His life rights are owned by the filmmakers. Yeah. Uh, well, they've got a lot of work to do if Ooh, they own the rights yes. to his life. Because that's uh, the other yeah. great thing about doing this film now as we have is that like the story continues. Like, there's, yeah, uh, yeah. This would have felt incomplete now. Uh, if we'd have done it earlier, right. but but of course, I I I gotta point out what an interesting rewatch this is in 2018. Right, it, you know, it was mean, always just... a good film. It was always well worth watching, even if there are controversies around near it. It's a it's a very interesting, fascinating movie. But if you've watched it already and haven't watched it after the developments, and you know of the developments, and I'm sure we're, we're going to illuminate you on them, um, it's now a a double it, it's basically a, you get a rewatch bonus now yeah it feels like yeah. a it feels like a different movie 
almost. Because... A bit, especially at the beginning when they're just so many people are praising Billy Mitchell's skills. Yeah, and and I mean, and it's and again, the thing to make clear in, in a lot of ways is is that he does have skills. Yes, yeah, he is. He's a what? He's still one of the best arcade players out there, not just of Donkey Kong, but of many games. Sure, he had rec- I mean, he's the first guy uh, on record to have uh, scored a perfect Pac-Man game, and I think there's only like a half dozen, maybe as many as a dozen people who've done it in the world now. Yeah, and yeah. I, that's. That's crazy. That is a, a, a wild accomplishment. He had high scores for uh, Donkey Kong Jr. I think he had a centipede high score at one point. Um, there's... Yeah. He steadily lost them over time, but then that's kind of to be expected as the the pool widens and well, things and, become more accessible in in And the demands the of adulthood increase, too. You got to acknowledge the guy is a... I don't know how successful a business owner, but, but he he's a, a hot, yeah, he's a hot sauce man. Yeah, he he has a his own restaurant and hot sauce distribution company, and yeah, uh, you know so we can't he, all ignore our kids' shitty asses. In fact, I dare say Billy Mitchell's business has caused quite a few of them. It's kind of his job. Oh my God, Billy Mitchell has struck again, <laughs> just pushing Steve Weeby further down. It was his hot sauce all along. It made a spicy ring piece. You've got to worry about those if you eat Billy Mitchell's hot sauce. Burns on the way in, burns on the way out. (laughs) Billy Mitchell, the king of Kong. (laughs) Uh, Right. Uh, There were some other things we've got to. Right, right, right. Can you tell the listener, if they're unaware, why the movie is so fascinating now? Well, I mean, I think. A big part of the reason it's so fascinating is the personalities in it. Oh no, I mean, I I meant tell them what Billy Mitchell did. Oh, what Billy Mitchell did. Rat on him. Oh right. Rat on him. Okay, so well, it it, you know the movie came out in two thousand seven. Um, so it's been more than a decade now, and the the big twist that has resulted in the story lately is that all Billy Mitchell's records have been stripped. Uh, his his high scores in Donkey Kong, in Pac-Man, all of the stuff that's on the Twin Galaxies ranking board, and thereby extending into Guinness. Uh, the Guinness World Record book had Mitchell records in it. Those are being uh, removed as well. Which is uh, also, you know, that makes it interesting when you watch the, the movie again because the Guinness World Records is a plot point. Yeah, that's that. That is a a milestone in the development of Twin Galaxies, and uh, is something that it seems is going to you know be a big thing in the future, and and I'm sure it it has been, uh, but here now that relationship comes in again as as we see it stripped, and and we'll see some of the. It's interesting because the stuff that's shown in the film that raises suspicion about Mitchell isn't what winds up getting it. Yeah, it is like there is a tape in the movie. Uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, you should. And that, and that really tape has been one. debunked. Yeah, now, he sent. But... He submitted a tape in the movie, uh, and it's very suspicious. But the thing that's suspicious about it isn't what got him caught, and isn't actually suspicious. It's a again very interesting to watch now, knowing that. Yeah, because I mean, this is a, you know, this is an example of the documentarians taking something that is in almost all likelihood completely innocent and 
focusing on it as a questionable thing intended to raise doubts in the viewer's mind as to its legitimacy. Now, the tape itself has since been found to be illegitimate, but does that excuse the sort of painting of it in the way that they did? I don't know, but it's certainly very interesting to look at it and have that question be answered as you're watching. Yeah, yeah, it's... It, it was really it's a, it was a really good watch before now, and it is a, a a doubly enjoyable watch now. Yeah. Well, do we want to get into it? Let's get into it. Let's talk about the King of Kong. We begin with Billy Mitchell uh, explaining how competitive gaming isn't about fun, and Steve Weeby talking about how playing an arcade machine is just man versus machine in a purely skill-based exercise. So right the off Terminator, the Terminator, basically. Yeah, yeah. And right off the top here, we have our two perspectives, our two lead characters that are, are coming into conflict. Billy Mitchell, the long-haired, uh, always, you know, dressed in a shirt and tie, dress shirt and tie, Always loud American tie, yeah. Loud yep. American patriotic tie with his with his mullet. I mean, it, you know, if you want to talk about all America, <laughs> my God, Billy Mitchell is all America. He is, uh, he's Rocky in Rocky Four. Yeah, he's what he's what people outside of America think all Americans are like. Except he's also the Russian from Rocky Four. <laughs> This movie ultimately is about the duality, the duality of the human condition. Well, I think in, in some ways that's probably true because you look at Steve Wiebe. Steve Wiebe, just from go, you can see he is the other end of a coin in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, he is the most dressed up we ever see him is a polo shirt that he wears when he's at work. True. Right? True. He's T-shirts, shorts. Uh, he's in Seattle. Billy's in Florida. He's the everyman. Billy's the personality, the character, the celebrity. Right. So there's already just a lot of clear distinctions. Just yeah. looking at them initially, that you can you can see that they're setting up. Um, so following this little bit of uh, insight, we get an explanation of what the hobby of competitive gaming is, as described by some of the lesser known players in the scene, and Walter Day. Uh, mm. who, who says he wanted to get the girls by being good at Centipede. That's, he thought that, that was going to impress the ladies, and that's how he got into this. Yeah. Unfortunately, Boy, did you miss the mark there, my friend. His Centipede wasn't getting any action. hey Oh, oh don't, <laughs> don't try and fuck yourself with a Centipede. There Do are not. those big ones, and you might look at them and be tempted, but, like, what end do you put in? They got... Now, they got bitey things at both ends unless you cork one end that said if there are any sex toy designers out there looking for inspiration bad dragon give us a call yeah because I, I think the centipede you could do something really interesting with the texturing on a centipede uh-huh. little legs little yep. legs stroking about wriggling mm-hmm. about just mm-hmm. don't use a real one the ones no. that are big enough to be of any use to you are big enough to kill snakes. Have you ever <laughs> seen a centipede fighting a snake, Conrad? I have not. Then you haven't been on YouTube for, like, 
a, a collective week. Because eventually, if you're on YouTube long enough, and it don't take that long, you'll find a snake and a centipede fighting. Or maybe it's just me because I like to look at insects eating insects. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I it's think that's just your recommendations. Yeah, it's horrifying yeah. and macabre. Uh, but seeing like a locust get chewed on or like ants crawling all over a spider while the spider's like, ah, it's like nightmarish and ghastly, but I can't start watching it. So uh, I guess I guess we could take a brief moment to talk about Walter Day. Walter yeah, Day yeah. is, I think if there's one word I would use to describe him, it would be earnest. Yeah. He is a believer. He's a dreamer. Uh, he's a man of many varied interests. Yes, yes, very... Uh, he's basically, like, imagine Dolph Lundgren with his whole action movie and yet also a bit of a renaissance man, as smart as he is, educated, um, genius-level intellect, some would say. Like, it's that, but but not Dolph Lundgren. Very yeah. not Dolph Lundgren. <laughs> Yeah, because, he, well, I guess Walt, I would say Walter never achieved, I think, the success that he saw for himself. He certainly didn't achieve the success Dolph Lundgren achieved. No, no. Dolph Lundgren has, what, is this going to be the Rocky Four episode? It might, and it, no, we can't, well, I mean, <laughs> it's tempting, isn't it? <laughs> uh, Billy explains, uh sort of the impulse to be the best that drives competitive gamers by using the Red Baron as an analogy. Oh, yes, yes, I liked this. The- uh, because, at, first of all, Billy Mitchell is proven a liar because he asks, you know, who was the second most famous uh, air fighter after the so Red Baron? You don't know. Nobody knows his Nobody name. Nobody knows his name. And then he names him. So he knows. So he's a liar on that front. I make him a liar out on that. Nobody knows his name. You knew. Wikipedia probably knows. I'll ask him later. But uh, but the Red, Red Baron had such a great distance between his closest yeah. competitors. I think it was like, like 87 or something. Like In the 80s compared to in the 20s, it was the second best was an American. Yeah, in terms of how many pilots they had shot down uh, yeah. in air combat. He's yeah. basically so, saying that he, even though he's comparing himself to the Red Baron, he's saying that he is leagues ahead. Like, the second best doesn't matter because the sec- the difference between second best and first place is such a gulf that you don't you might as well be among every other also ran. That's how he views life. If you're not number one, it's a zero-sum game. You are just nothing. So we get a... Next, we get a history of Twin Galaxies and the Donkey Kong High score. Beginning in 1982 with a Life magazine photo shoot outside of the Twin Galaxies arcade. Now, this is where Billy Mitchell meets another interesting, I think really significant character in this story, um, at least from the perspective of having a character that experiences some sort of change in this film, uh, Steve Sanders. Yes, very, very interesting, Um, and maybe... Maybe the most well-rounded personality in the movie. Oh, yeah, I think so. I, I think he's, he's certainly the one who demonstrates a maturity that a lot of the other people uh, don't. Yeah, one that and, develops more over the course of the movie almost. Yeah, it's, and, and some of that may be down to just, you know, the editing again. Um, yeah, yeah. But, 
but even still, they, they actually go to an effort to make Steve look kind of good. Yeah, which is funny because he's the only one in the movie who openly admits to cheating. Well, and, and I mean, he's, he's a lawyer and a Christian. <laughs> and somehow <laughs> the redeemable... <laughs> <laughs> oh, my... <laughs> That's going to upset some people. <laughs> Now, now I I tease, but uh, no, he is he is a he seems like a he comes away like a decent guy, oh, yeah, more yeah. than just about anybody in the film. Like I have honestly I have problems yes. with Steve Weeby that I don't have with Sanders. Well, we never see Santa's ignoring a shitty ass. If 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 anything, when we see Sanders with his children, and uh, and maybe we don't in this film because there's. The other thing to keep in mind is there there are two documentaries that came out around this time about the competitive arcade scene. And there's King of Kong and there's Chasing Ghosts. And I've watched both of them very recently. Now, Chasing Ghosts I haven't seen, but and I'm we, very we will, excited to do We will do, do that at some point because, oh, <laughs> like I, one of the great things about King of Kong are the, the characters that you meet in it. Right. They're my favorite bits, the side characters, the people in the periphery of, of Weeby and, and Billy Mitchell. Billy Mitchell more so because that's where all the arca- the competitive arcade gamers are. And a lot of them are interesting, very yeah. colorful. Very colorful people. And so, but, but King of Kong is really about this, you know, Donkey Kong high score. Chasing yeah. Ghosts is just about the people. And boy, it's... It's fascinating. It's a lot of fun to see some of the people that I'd already seen in King of Kong again and to get to know more about them. That's what I want. I want more of, of some of those guys. The guy yeah. who plays um, Crystal Cave. Crystal, Crystal Castles uh, with his Crystal yeah. Castle, sorry, with his foot. Yep. Uh, the, the guy who has to watch all the tapes with Robert his Doom three yep. shirt. Yeah. Robert Murchek's huge in Chasing Ghosts. Oh, that's good because I, 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 I could listen to Robert Murchek talk all day. Which yeah. is funny because you could look at him and say he's not overly charismatic. He's not. He's very just matter of fact in his speech and a little bit, you know, quiet and maybe some could say awkward. But there's just something about him just yeah. talking with this faint, like like Eeyore almost, like very dolorous, very yes. uh, very just doesn't sound like much fun fun to be around. And, and I'm not saying that about. I'm not saying that is true of him. I'm saying that's the tone of his voice. Yeah. And yet, I could listen to it complain about how hard he's got it watching the videotapes all day long. And I don't mean that to say that he doesn't have because I couldn't sit through 200 hours of that fucking stuff. But well, I, And I believe his day job is that he's an accountant. Oh, well. You go from so, looking at numbers to looking yeah. at numbers. In fact, accounting, accounting is, it seems to be a popular career choice for people involved in competitive gaming. No, again, it's all, it's all numbers, isn't it? So yeah. Yeah. you go from so, looking at a high score to watching other people's uh, numbers go down, I think. I think that's how it works. Young Steve Sanders in 1982 had come to Iowa for the Life magazine shoot on a claim of having scored over 3 million points in Donkey Kong. That's a lot of points. That's a lot of points. As you may recall, we (laughs) mentioned earlier in our discussion of the movie that this movie is about the quest to achieve 1 million points. Yes. Uh, So there's a bit of a discrepancy. 
One million is the goal. But right. Steve Sanders, why would that be the goal? Steve Sanders, he already got three million. Why, right. why bother? He's the Red Baron. So at this event, Billy Mitchell challenges Steve Sanders to a game of Donkey Kong. And Billy just wastes him. Yeah. Absolutely obliterates. Billy was not going to stand for anyone else being king shit a fuck mountain. That's right. And and sure enough, uh, Sanders scores something like 200,000 points. Billy sets a record of 874,300 points. Yeah. And Billy recounts this in a way in a way in which I'm surprised he's not rubbing his crotch at the same time because he talks about how he dominated Steve Sanders <laughs> and basically talks very in lurid ex- ecstatic detail about how he cowed him and Steve Sanders got to be his friend and well, yeah and it's like, it makes me think, like, is that how Billy Mitchell makes friends? He can't be your friend unless he absolutely dominates you in some way. I mean, judging by the people that seem to operate in his periphery, you know, and, and to a certain extent serve him, I think that that's probably true. Yeah. On yeah. some level. I, I get that sense. That... It's like he needs his hand between your legs firm and strong. Mm-hmm. Before he will, yeah, and and you've got to emotionally, mentally feel that way. Yep. Uh, and Billy Mitchell ends up talking about something like like how destroying him in that Donkey Kong game was the best thing that ever happened to. Oh Steve yeah, Sanders. he 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 basically. See, I I think he believes he st- he saved Steve Sanders' life. Yeah, like like basically, once you get to become one of Billy Mitchell's underlings, you have some semblance of worth in your life. <laughs> And I think that's how he likes to feel. In in, in it, that's his social world. See, I mean, but I was, then that's I was how thinking the of it more from you know, like, so. oh, prevented him from going so- down some dark path from which he would never return. But sure, I mean that too. I mean, you know, he he could see himself as a messianic archetype. I, he's got the hair. He's got the hair. He's got the whole look. And he's got the Christian following him around now. See, I brought it right back around. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Uh, we get to hear some praise from, uh, for Mitchell, from Walter Day, from Steve Sanders, Mitchell's parents, other competitors in the gaming scene. And we, we get will see... get in trouble, by the way, if you just refer to Steve Sanders as the Christian for the rest of the movie. Yes, I will. I will get in trouble for that, but that's yeah. okay. I, I, I won't do that. You should do it. But, but I think he is the only one. That's like it, he's the only one who says that's expressed it. it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm sure Billy Mitchell's a Christian, which is enough to to put him up on the cross. <laughs> oh, how dare! Well, I'm I'm I am in a, in a world where there's only you. one Christian, someone has to go on the cross. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's in the Bible. That's not even me saying it. <laughs> Isn't it like a contractual obligation? Like God made a contract that not even He could break. So he had to send himself down to get himself killed to show off that he could do it so that humanity was saved, which is a bit like how Billy Mitchell makes friends. (laughs) Are you saying that Billy Mitchell is God? Well, God and Jesus are one and the same. And he's got the look. He's got the look for Jesus. So (sighs) he might be Yahweh. Wow. Wow, and then Walter Day would be like his... He's his... not just the King of Kong, he's the King of Kings. Walter Day is like his his, his Paul spreading yes. the gospel. 
Yes, and he'll betray him th- at three million points. <laughs> <laughs> I was unnecessarily <coughs> proud of that. It doesn't even really work. No, it's but only it's got still three that, that yeah. shared between that and the cock. So uh, we, we were also showed Billy's business as a purveyor of hot sauces. It's Ricky's World Famous, is the brand if you want to try his hot sauce. I think it was um, Peter was the one that betrayed. I mean, I know G- Judas did the the really bad one. He was the one who proper betrayed. Yeah. But looking back, I think it might have been. Well, I know Thomas was doubtful. Well, yeah, I know. One, one will you deny me and one of you will betray me. Yeah. Yeah. Which one was sleepy? <laughs> I don't know. They're all kind of dopey to me. Oh, uh, Conrad Zimmer. <laughs> oh, they'll put you up on the cross with this. <laughs> Someone's got to go up. It's in the Bible. It's not even me saying it. <laughs> anyway, let's talk about the King of Kings. Well, Mitchell is is shown as a star, basically. A celebrity in, in amongst competitive gaming, particularly after he achieves the first perfect game in Pac-Man. And we get to hear this terrible folk song about him playing. Oh, God! I forgot about it last time we when in the recording we didn't uh, put up. And I forgot about it this time. And now I remember it again. It's we never see the man again. We see nope. almost everybody else. I mean, we do. We see everybody else who talks up until this point. We just see one thing from him, and it's horrid. It it is. And I mean, is this guy a folk hero? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really? Yeah. Well, I mean, folk songs now. Like there, there's a whole thing called filk music now, which is like you know, I think it's like folk music around fandoms and things so he could be like billy mitchell could be a filk legend i mean he's not he's he's, god a father i'd like to know (laughs) (laughs) i don't know Uh, mitchell doesn't isn't shown as having a family other than his parents no 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 which is interesting too I mean, but we he... see his wife. Oh, does he have? Oh, yes, that's right. He does. He does uh, do a walkthrough with his wife. That's right. Yeah. Yes, I'd forgotten about that. Um, Billy reflects on how, you know, in the balance of things, the whole karmic balance of the universe. As lucky as he's been, there is somebody out there who is just screwed. Cut yes. Steve Weeby. <laughs> yes. Basically, uh, he, yeah, Steve Weepy, the, the Mr. Glass to Unbreakable. Yeah, he, he laid off from his job at Boeing, decided that he could beat the world record in Donkey Kong. Uh, now, Weepy's presented in the film as this guy who never got a break. Uh, he was a high school baseball pitcher who was unable to play in the big game uh, that could have, you know, gotten him a college scholarship for, you know, or do whatever. Uh, because his father had been overplaying him. His father was the manager of the team, and he got an injury, couldn't play in the big like regional or state game, whatever it was. So he's got that. Then he was a, like a skilled drummer in a garage band in Seattle, uh, and that would have been around the time Seattle grunge would have been really big, but apparently only his parents ever came out to see him. <laughs> like It is a sad sack story. Um, yeah. And it's one that's presented as a guy who, like, despite all his efforts, in a lot of ways, the world conspired 
To... I'd hate to see Steve Weeby's sad sack. <laughs> To, to keep him down. I mean, I mean, conspired. It's just you know, people around him made choices that prevented him from yeah. achieving his potential. His his life is the montage of uh, Steve Carell trying to have sex in the forty year old virgin. Is he keeps getting near opportunities and then something goes wrong. It isn't really his fault. Now, um, following this is a, a explanation of Donkey Kong, which is considered by many to be one of the most challenging arcade games. And Weeby demonstrates the kind of obsession, obsessive attention that, uh, that competitive play requires by showing a, a trick by which the player can manipulate where barrels will fall. He, he's standing between two ladders and, and, a barrel is rolling down the pylon towards these two ladders, and by taking a step back at the right moment, he can force that barrel to drop down the earlier ladder rather than the later one. Yeah. Um, the barrels are presented as, as certainly one of Donkey Kong's biggest threats in this game. Which, it's the barrels and the elevators. They, it's uh, it's the elevator the stage issues. that is the most. And yeah. uh, explaining this is, is Brian Koo who we get to meet hmm. for the first time, or as I'm, I'm taking to calling him Brian Foreskin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Brian Foreskin works. Brian the Wormling Prince works. Yeah, he is, if, if there is a, a, a uh, what's, what's, what's the name of the guy who uh, sits at Jabba's foot and, and Oh, laughs. Salacious Crumb. He's salacious like, Crumb. He is Jabba's the Salacious Crumb of this film. It. Yeah. <laughs> That's what he sounds like exactly in the movie as well. <laughs> uh, Brian Koo is, he looks like, because, I, 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 you know, it's, it's hard to say things like this because I know our audience, right? But he looks like, he looks like the nerd that you beat up in school, right? right. Sort of skinny. Well, he's uh, very generic. Very he's, just, he's just, very just generic, generic nerd. There's nothing about him that particularly stands out, right? He's, yeah, he he looks like the human equivalent of milk toast. You you if you, you know you don't exaggerate any of the qualities that would you would look at a person and say, oh, God, what a what a nerd. But yeah. you just kept them within the boundaries of reality. This is like the prototype. He's the mold uh, that you would put that guy in. And, and he that's... looks how water tastes. <laughs> and it's and and I don't want to be unfair to the guy. Um, he he does a, a perfectly good job of making himself seem like a terrible person you wouldn't want to be around. Um, so I, I don't want you yeah. to feel sorry for Brian Coo no, when I say that. No. And I'm just saying he's nondescript. Yeah. Like, just imagine a very generic, you know, yeah, he's actually he's guy. The kind of, he's and... the kind of person that you'd probably, if you were a bully in high school, you probably wouldn't bother. You know, yeah. You'd see him, you'd be like, eh, it's not worth the effort. He's not weird enough. <laughs> it's, yeah, that's probably, anyway. Let's go find the school's only Christian instead. <laughs> But uh, Brian uh, introduces these elevator stages as the, the most challenging. And in those particular stages, there are these sort of bouncing things that uh, move their way through the level that are very difficult to contend with. Yeah, I think they're called bouncy bouncers. Bouncy bouncers? Yeah. Works for me. 
Uh, a discussion of Weeby's relevant skills follows as his friends and family remark on his ability to capture a rhythm and the level of control he can achieve with his hands. Um, and they compare... He bought his... a drum kit for his child that only Steve Weeby uses. <laughs> well, and, and he's also a talented artist. Uh, he can draw. We're next shown Weeby making a, a world record attempt. And this is uh, the bit of footage that we were uh, on about at the very top of the, of the, the yeah, podcast. Yeah, yeah. This is this is the scene that's uh, it. It's hard to because Steve Weeby is portrayed as the protagonist of the story. The the one, the one we're supposed, we're supposed to, be to sympathize. Towards. Yeah, yeah. And this is some of the least sympathetic footage you could find for someone who you're trying to portray as the the honest, down to earth. Yeah. Little person fighting against the big guy, you know, the big machine, the status quo, because he ain't wiping that kid's ass for nothing. No, he's well, he's 200,000 points uh, from achieving his record. And, 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 and you just, I mean, and it is that kid. I mean, I can understand being annoyed by a kid who's, you know, like, urge, but that kid's ass needs to be wiped. Yeah. That, yeah. That's what it comes down to. The kid's ass needs to be wiped. And it it is hard to it's yeah. I mean it's neglect on some level. It Unless is, that kid's a, just a very lazy teenager, there is no excuse. Yeah. And <laughs> it's uh Steve Steve comments on the fact he, he interacts with the child, talks but he, he just doesn't wipe the kid's ass um this is ultimately the video that steve weeby will send to twin galaxies i Uh, wouldn't have i i honestly would have been like you know what they get to a point where it no matter how high the score is the video's untenable yeah so you're just like you know what i'm gonna take a dive and start again i mean i'm I'm surprised he kept his cool with that noise going on. That's all I'll say that's that's impressive about that video. Because I once just tried to dodge 200 lightning bolts in Final Fantasy X and, and my sister ran screaming up the stairs and that just put me off once. And that was the end of that. That was the end of that. So Weeby sends this tape to Twin Galaxies. What What is Twin Galaxies? Well, let's, let's go... Meet the guy who founded it in some more detail. This is Walter Day. Uh, He is uh, introduced as a transcendental meditation adherent in addition to being the founder of Twin Galaxies. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He loves all that. As man of many interests, as we've said before, uh, Day is praised by Steve Sanders for, uh, through his own hard graft, ensuring that there exists an organized list of people who score highly on video games. Yeah. And when you say a sentence like that out loud, it seems kind of goofy. Um, and I'm sure it seemed goofy to a lot of people in the 80s and then more so in the 90s. Uh, these days, esports are such a thing. Yeah. That now, very much a, a pioneer in a way. Well, I, and a, a big part of this Twin Galaxies discussion in this film now, mm-hmm. as opposed to then, is that I really feel like the people associated with Twin Galaxies were getting into these two documentaries, and I think they might have thought that like this is our moment. 
Like, yeah. This is well, where... Walter Day certainly thought that about his music, but we'll yeah. talk about that later. Uh, it, it's this. This is when it's going to break out for us, and they were about five years too early. Yeah, with, honestly, with, with the industry and and twenty five years too early with their games. I mean, imagine that. Like you've been doing this all your life, more or less. Now, like you know, thirty years or so, and not really been taken all that seriously, not really all that mega successful or famous. Like, Twin Galaxies as a thing, as, a, as a, an establishment is gone, like it exists uh, as a record-keeping thing. Yeah. But, you know, the, the arcade's gone, as, as you, you've told me before. Um, and then eSports took off. And then people are competitive gaming, are live-streaming it, uh, and some of them making unbelievable amounts of cash yeah. unbelievable amounts and they it, it must be hard to feel like you were the first boat on the shore and yet off the shore and somehow missed the boat at the same time well that's i mean it, it, that is a that's a pretty common thing that we yeah, see in yeah. in innovation right is that the the first person to have and execute the idea isn't necessarily the one that succeeds it, no, it's no. it's very often the second or third person who comes along, sees the idea, and sees where they're making mistakes. We see that in the video game industry, all over the place. Sure, you know? uh, PUBG and, and Fortnite. I right. mean, PUBG was still very successful, but Fortnite's the one that became the mainstream smash, and yeah. and they're quite bitter about it. I feel, uh, given the way they behaved, and uh, hell, the Switch. It was the first game system many might think now as bringing console level games to handhelds but sony had been trying to do that for years well and we had uh, the wii u prior to that yeah yeah you know this this is yeah these these are uh the the, the in most cases i think that people who innovate run the risk of being left behind um mm-hmm. and and that's really unfortunate because it's usually them that made all the investments to figuring yeah. out how to get it to that first point. And then it's the next guy who's going to uh, make all the money in the end. But, uh, <clears throat> um, oh, Sanders also draws a comparison between uh, Twin Galaxies and George W. Bush. Because <laughs> you got to remember the year that this was made. It's like this was, would have all been shot in 2006, so George W. Bush would have still been there. Yeah. And and we have to remember again that uh, Steve Sanders is a lawyer and a Christian. So these are things that... We, How could we forget? Yeah, so George W. Bush would be, you know, someone someone important to him, most likely. Uh, but but he, he draws this comparison in noting that there's a necessity for rule of law, which is, boy... Uh, uh. Rule of law campaigning makes me deeply uncomfortable. I don't know about you guys. Uh, we're also introduced to, uh, yeah, you, you've, you, you love him, I love him, Robert Merchek. Hey! Uh, at, at this time, the head referee for Twin Galaxies and has a seemingly limitless collection of game recordings to watch. Uh, yes. That, now, we're shown some of his apartment in Brooklyn. And and it's just piles of tapes. He points out a Nibbler run, says it's something like 40 hours. It's a stack of eight VHS tapes. Mm-hmm. That, I, 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 and he talks about it, you know, 
as in a way that makes it sound like he hates it, even though it, this could only be a job of passion. Clearly, yeah, it, yeah, yeah, you have to love it. And he's like, you know, these tapes are all here, and I've got to sit here and watch all this. And he's like, he can't even believe what he's saying in that muted, toned down way in which he talks. Yes, uh, and he's just like, this. These are two hundred tapes here. These are nothing. And then he shows us like boxes you'd imagine are used for moving house. He's and just, just full of dour. Tapes. Yeah, if there were a. He he seems like the sort of person who is like would be would function as a, an emotional black hole. He's the human dirge, but I love him. Yeah, no, no, he it's like he I could see him pulling all of the energy out of the room as it's attracted towards him, <laughs> and I'm okay with that because entropy is an important thing. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know it is crucial. And, and he. Uh, Sorry. He uh, uh, goes into what watching these tapes entails. It's yeah. looking for any kind of irregularities in the play, uh, whether that be editing tricks or you know whether it's... Yeah, it goes into a little bit. Not a huge deal. Although yeah. I, I would... Again, it might just be because I, I could listen to him talk all day, but I would love just a, a good detailed breakdown of what he looks for in these games and... And all of that. I he should he should have had a YouTube channel. I'd have subscribed to that in a heartbeat. I truly believe that there is. I mean, I, Twin Galaxies. Uh, Walter Day, I think, did write a book about Twin Galaxies, but I would like an unauthorized third party mm. account of this that that goes and talks to people past and present and really fleshes out the story. Because I did just the most cursory amount of digging after watching this film uh, to sort of learn more about the aftermath and things like that. And this... You've got some good Where Are They Now stuff coming up for the end. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. subculture is just fascinating. And uh, these people are passionate about... And, and they're passionate about something that you can at least understand being passionate about even if you could not possibly conceive of being passionate about it yourself yeah um this it's not like a lot of this reddit forum shit posting crap where you see people getting all passionate and, and stupid over something that really doesn't matter to them this is this isn't trolling these people fucking care and it's amazing um if if you have time and you want to do a, a deep dive, boy, you could do far worse than seeing what the people at Twin Galaxies were talking about for the you know 20 years they had forums before they were uh, sold. Yeah. I mean, just... I'm sure you could find some amazing stories yeah. about Twin Galaxies, what went on behind the scenes there, and I bet there's a lot of enthralling stuff. I... I, I would love i it's it's the sort of thing where i'm almost interested enough to consider trying to pursue it myself right just because that, yeah it, there's so much there um we also get to see uh some of what robert Merchek does uh while he's watching these tapes uh he exercises uh, he specifically exercises his wrist. That's the only exercise we ever see him performing. Yeah, he's got little hand weights and his own wrist exercises with him. And I will leave... While watching videotapes. I will leave that to your imagination as to yeah. the 
end goal of that. Um, Surely it's just to to hone his arcade playing skills. Yes, I'm sure. I'm sure. Because he is a marathoner, actually, and himself as well. Um, and, and that's something you, you learn more about in Chasing Ghosts. He's a guy who can, you know, play asteroids for a weekend. Well, I mean, he just sits there watching videotapes, like 200 videotapes at a time. I can imagine marathoning this stuff is his biggest skill by this point. He's built for it, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, we, we get to see him viewing the tape that, uh, Steve Weeby sent in, uh, complete with the screaming child, which he also gets a bit of a chuckle about um and i don't know if that should make me uncomfortable or not too <laughs> i kind of have to wonder i mean it's what you would it's what you would nervously laugh i think if you were watching yeah, that yeah but i have to question whether or not robert Burchek has that thought in the back of his head <laughs> over whether or not this is neglect huh it's a I like Robert a lot, and I don't want to think about his ethics. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a graphic indicates at this point that Steve Weeby has broken the record uh, by scoring over a million points. And there are a bunch of local news reports shown celebrating this achievement. It was kind of a, a publicity thing for, for Weeby. Yeah. And in the meantime... Steve Weeby earns a master's degree in a specialized one-year program and becomes a high school science teacher. Uh, the documentary interviews a couple of his students. and <laughs> I love these. The student that says something and the student that says nothing. They're the two character names. Yeah. And, and they got one of the best lines in the movie. Yeah, it was, a, was it? Oh, I, I knew he had a. I didn't know it was a world record. I didn't know it was a. I knew he had a record. I didn't know it was a world record. All of the science teachers in our high school are weird. Wait, and, and that's now, it. That's not just their high school. <laughs> I, I, every high school I've ever heard of had at least one weird science teacher. In, in my high school, there were two. And they shared a chemistry closet. And they were a, a lot of fun. They both taught uh, higher level uh, chemistry and physics. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of them had a like a tie-dye lab coat and he had a ping pong ball gun that he'd built himself that he would use to wake rousing students in his sleeping students he'd wake sleeping students in his class educational and fun he had fantastic aim (laughs) and he'd get you all the way in the back of the room and he was preparing to do this to one of the students at, at one point and the other teacher came through the chemistry closet in the classroom. He just whipped around and hit him right in the forehead. <laughs> and the teacher was sort of visibly stunned for about half a second. Then, without expression, went back into the chemistry closet and returned with what was colloquially referred to by the teachers as go-go juice. <laughs> because <laughs> it made things go. Uh, but what it was was it was a, a specific alcohol that they used, <laughs> which uh, didn't emit light when it burned or didn't emit enough light when it burned that you could see it if there was any ambient light. <laughs> <laughs> Pours it all over the guy's uh, chem counter, lights it on fire, and walks back out of the room like nothing. <laughs> like nothing's happening here. Over a ping pong ball in the head, an errant ping pong. That is a... Oh, that's an escalation. It it was yes, it was they were fun people. 
<laughs> to say the least. But that's so every I think and I'm sure you in your high school, wherever you are, had or do have, depending on your age, that strange person. And you know what? Make friends with that person. Because there's going to be entertainment value to last you a lifetime. Not good enough friends where they're comfortable enough setting fire to your desk for a joke. Yeah, I wouldn't let it get to that point. But uh, but up till there, I think you're good. <laughs> so, um, Greg Bond. Now, he's one of your favorites. Greg Bond, the mappy champion. Uh. Greg reminds me of Teddy from Bob's Burgers in a big way. Like, he's... Uh, <laughs> very, very positive, but very just straightforward in his yeah. assessment of things. He doesn't mince words, but he doesn't have a bad word to say either. Yeah, he seems to be uh, one of the guys in here who's just all around decent, at least as portrayed in the movie. I don't know anything about the guy, but in the movie, just an all around decent fella, it seems. He, he's a guy that I could see myself hanging out with. You know, he's a little uh. awkward socially, certainly. That that much is apparent. But he seems like a, a good guy to have in your corner, just from the little we're exposed to him. Uh, he notes that Steve Weeby also took the high score on Donkey Kong Jr., which had been previously held by Mitchell. So here, Weeby come and taking all his shit. Yeah, I think they also draw attention to the fact that... Uh... He had other records disappearing as well. Like, they really try and portray him as the, the, the falling king. Yeah, well, Roy Schilt, this is our first time meeting Roy ah. Schilt. Uh, he notes that the Donkey Kong record was Billy Mitchell's last one. And so that's that's probably set him off. Mitchell's friends and family all sort of indicate this isn't the kind of thing that, that Mitchell's just going to let pass. It's, it's not going to slide. He's going to have some plan because Billy Mitchell's the guy who always has a plan. Um, yeah. and this... I mean, they talk, they say it like that, but surely the only plan in general is to play Donkey Kong. <laughs> <laughs> He's always got a plan. What are you going to do, Billy? Probably well, I mean, in, in, in fairness, in the event of this plan, it seems he may have already played Donkey Kong. Yeah. But we'll get there. Uh, the story takes a bit of a turn, a little twist, when two competitive gamers, Brian Koo, our, our, good, our good foreskin, just waiting to happen, and Perry Rogers, uh, who is a Donkey Kong uh, expert as well, they go to Steve. They go to visit Steve Weeby in Seattle. Uh, it's it's worth noting that Brian Koo traveled to Seattle from New Hampshire, where he lives, to do this. This is a cross country journey, and uh, it the film seems to suggest. Now they don't make a big thing about where Brian's from until later, so the audience wouldn't necessarily draw this connection. But they seem to suggest that like the purpose for his visit is to see Steve Weeby's machine. Um, there's some dispute over this. Uh, having, uh, uh, one of the more famous arcades in the United States is in Portland, Oregon. It's yeah. not that far of a trip. It's a pretty nice arcade. It's not a fun spot. I, I wouldn't drive across the country to go to ground control. Uh, I Hell, I, I lived eight blocks from ground control. And couldn't be arsed to go there more than <laughs> twice in three years. Um, but that's, you know, there's, sure, he might have just been taking a vacation and 
happen to be there to go to the home of the guy who broke the record uh, that the penis for which you are the foreskin uh, lost. Just saying that, that, you know, could be innocent. Certainly isn't portrayed that way in the film. No. And uh, I mean, at the very least, it what I, I, I maintain it was disrespectful because they were told no by Nicole Weeby and they were let in by the mother, but to just walk into a garage and start inspecting stuff and having a go when you were told to wait yeah, they, for, for Steve Weeby. There's disrespect there on no matter what the chain of events were. Yes, yes, exactly. Nicole Weeby had asked them to wait outside. Steve was on his way home. Uh, it, it seems that it was understood that these guys were coming, that it wasn't a surprise that they were... You know, but the film portrays it vaguely so as to leave the possibility open for the more dramatic interpretation that these just guys these guys just showed up unannounced and inconvenienced them um not i don't think that's the case uh but they did you know rather than politely decline to go hang out in the guy's garage and have lemonade and receive a quarter when asked by the mother uh, they went in and did those things. And so, that, yeah, I agree that that's disrespectful. And, and Weeby comes home to, uh, Steve comes home to find them in his garage playing Donkey Kong. And during the course of their visit, they discover a shipping box with a return, of, a return address listing the previously mentioned Roy Schilt. And this... Roy Schilt. This is where it becomes a thing. So who is Roy Schilt? <laughs> Roy Schilt is a missile command player who refers to himself as Mr. Awesome. He has this character that he's created for himself, almost like a like a shield in a lot of ways. It's like the confident guy he wants to be and has sort of, I'm going to be this guy and forced himself into this mold. In a lot of ways, like he seems like a guy who had a lot of deep seated insecurity and focused that into not having insecurity anymore. Yeah. But enough about the Jimquisition. Let's talk about Roy Schill. And Walter Day takes the point of view that Roy is jealous of Mitchell's celebrity status, which I I think that that. There's a, there's a strong case to be well, made. Well, he tried for that. to make himself a, a celebrity. Yes. He, he has his video about how to get a what was it? A uh, hot piece of poontang uh, or something. Was, uh, yeah, no, yeah, something like that. So yeah, so but poontang. Hey, no man, board. got a something poontang. Yep, he's <laughs> Roy Schilt also features prominently in Chasing Ghosts. He needs to have his own documentary. Yes, he does. He makes VHS tapes telling guys how to get women, giving disastrous advice, it seems, dressed up like a, an army guy or a police officer. I can't He's in a uniform. Yeah, he, he with his, made himself sort of an almost police type uniform with a hat and yeah. a badge. and His uh, car registration plate reads uh, something awesome, you know, it's some... Yep. As close to Mr. Awesome as possible. He, he made Isn't a it comic called like, the Awesome Mobile or something? He made a comic I, um, book describing his life. That is, uh, I mean, it's 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 him talking about how many uh, attractive women he's had sex with and shit like that. It's what I like is they they show him 
in 2007 for the modern time, uh, you know, when it was shot, complaining about being passed over and overlooked and, and not recognised or respected by Twin Galaxies. And then it cuts to him in the past, a, a much younger version on the VHS tape, doing the same thing. It's like he's never stopped being bitter about the Missile Command score. And I am, I can imagine being a bit bitter if you feel like, you know, you've been passed over. I felt like that before. I still hold, you know, sore points over times when I felt, you know, looked over or not given my due or what, what have you. But to, to, to make 30 years worth of beef about it. He is a, a just fascinating character and and another one who is a, a significant presence in chasing ghosts and i another I, reason to look forward to it yes he and, is just there's something else as a result him. there are things that i know about roy schilt that i i'm not the guy to ruin it for you <laughs> <laughs> but wow uh so schilt has this long-standing beef with twin galaxies regarding his high score on Missile Command. And seemingly in an effort to get some form of revenge, he worked out an arrangement with Steve Wiebe to where he would buy the motherboard for a Donkey Kong game so that Wiebe could pursue the record as a way of getting back at Billy Mitchell. And then, you know, Wiebe gets his arcade cabinet you know motherboard he gets to play his game he gets to make his attempt and Roy gets to put one over on his long-standing rival so cool right well the problem is is that because of this beef Twin Galaxies opts to reject Weeby's score because they have concerns over whether or not the motherboard may have been tampered with in some way that makes it a a non-standard PCB. Um, that's kind of rough. I mean, that's a that's a tough hit to take. But Merchek, there uh, we see him briefly shows. Uh, we can see motherboards that he's comparing on a screen as he's looking. I think at his day job. So, I, I hope they're cool with that. <laughs> but, um, <coughs> you know, he's just looking at and and you. He says, you know, a little bit of something tacky in the right spot could could change things. And I have yeah, to take like any sort of gum on the thing could mess, you know, make the game easier or you know allow allow for fucky things. He says the right piece of gum in the right place, and it could change the the whole thing. And I, I have to believe that that's true. And I have to believe that there are people out there pursuing it because they showed me the little thing where he took a step back and made the barrel drop down earlier clearly people are going into it into that kind of depth. Yeah. Uh, We are then shown Steve Sanders and Billy Mitchell together saying that, you know, well, both saying, not together, not together in this scene. They're saying that the true test is to perform in public at an an arcade that the competitive community knows and is familiar with. And that's that would be uh, a great example. That would be fun spot in New Hampshire. And though Weeby seems defeated, Roy Schilt convinces him to go to Fun Spot uh, for the American Classic Arcade Tournament and financed by one of his friends, Steve agrees to go. Uh, Schilt, Schilt takes great pride 
in having convinced Weeby to go. He says, I, I talked him out of chumpatizing himself. <laughs> and it's shit The last like thing that. you ever want to do is chumpatize yourself. It's shit like that. Chumpatize that, that makes Roy Schilt so interesting an individual. <laughs> that makes me want to know more. He has his own vocabulary that he uses. Uh, and the, now this this friend also that finances Steve Weeby's trip out to New Hampshire, um, he's one of the good guys also. He is the Steve Sanders uh, for Steve Weeby. He seems to be the dude that's got his back no matter what, seems to be a stand-up guy. Um... And I, you don't see much of him, but I, I did want to point out that I like him. I think he's a lot better person than Steve Weeby <laughs> from the little bit I'm exposed. Uh, a montage of fun spot footage follows, including some incredibly cringe-inducing descriptions of it as a video game mecca filled with quote-unquote DDG girls. Oh, yeah, DGG. Uh, or Drop Dead Gorgeous. Uh, Walter Day says it's where the press comes to meet the superstars. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, wow. Like, yes, within your own community, they are superstars. And I guess local news in the context of the relative scale of this group of people for whom they are superstars, local press is the press. But it just seems so self-aggrandizing in a silly way. There is that, yeah. There is, yeah. Um, another quite uh, amusing little bit there. All of it would have been fine if there was a sarcastic tone throughout. Right, yeah. All of their descriptions of this event would have been fine. A little more self-awareness, a little less self-aggrandizement. Yeah. yeah. Would have been... Would have been perfect. Uh, and we see one very, very, very disappointed uh, guy <laughs> slamming his trunk and setting off a car alarm next to his car. Yeah. Pulling up all his wires in the, the arcade before he goes, just packing up all his shit, dumping it in the trunk, and then slamming it. And, and he then starts two steps away as this car alarm's going. He has to stop and turn his head to look back at the alarm and then just stomps away. Just stomps away in silence. Only the the car alarm going after this joyous montage plays. And, and I feel I feel bad laughing at him because I understand that level of frustration of what it feels like. Oh God, I'm terrible. I'm I'm absolutely nightmarish. If I you know, I've been playing Bloodborne recently. The things I'll shout make yeah. me blush. I'll throw a controller here or there. Like I, I've got, I've got a temper on me. I, I know that feeling. But it's, it but is... I wouldn't want it on film. I wouldn't want my gaming, my heated gaming moments immortalized. And I think it's, I think it's because I just look very silly. Like because it doesn't. It's a thing that it didn't just impact him. You know, in our circumstances, when we throw a controller or we rage or we yell, you know, it's really just affecting us. He sets someone else's alarm off. Like he spread the frustration into another place. And yeah, yeah, that's what's amazing about it. Imagine if he got even angrier. Like I imagine if that guy gets any angrier, he will get reality warping tendencies. He'll be able to conjure things out of existence. It's it's that or scanners. 
Yeah. Oh, God, you'll do a scanners. That's why Fun Spot closed down. So, meet Brian Koo now. This is where we really get our real introduction to who Brian Koo is, or as I've previously mentioned, Billy Mitchell's foreskin. Brian was a cop troller, uh, which is a fancy name of saying a government accountant, who retired, quote unquote, that's how he refers to it, to New Hampshire to be closer to Fun Spot. And he plays mm-hmm. games there every day. Now, in a film where many of the individuals are depicted as being tools, none is a bigger tool than, than Brian. Like, if you think about comparing, say, a socket wrench versus a sledgehammer, that's the scale of tool. Brian Koo might be the biggest tool I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, he's just a dick. I mean, the story's amazing. He's not a, he's a young guy. He is a young One guy. One of the younger in the movie. I mean, he's uh, at early 30s at most at yeah. this point. Um, he, and, and, and he is dedicated to breaking this Donkey Kong record and following yeah. well, in Bill Mitchell's himself footsteps. As, he views himself as the understudy, the heir apparent. Yeah, he calls himself the prodigy at the one prodigy, point. The prodigy, yeah. And he is so smarmy, so full of himself and and how he's going to be special because he's going to beat this thing that is a very hard thing to beat and and only he can do it and it's just i'm glad it's here i'm i'm glad that they make me hate him so much <laughs> i really am uh, yeah and and I'm sure I'm sure there exists footage of Brian Koo that is sympathetic to him, in some ways, but I don't want to see it, because <laughs> Brian Koo is a better villain than Billy Mitchell is. Bill- yeah, I mean he's he's it's one of those things where Billy Mitchell's almost the grander scope villain. and the the more direct antagonist is Brian Koo. Right, uh, he is Billy Mitchell is Darth Sidious <laughs> to Brian Koo's Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> like, I know this is our second Star Wars reference in, rela- in, in, in making comparing the relationship between Billy Mitchell and Brian Koo, but they're all applying. They all work, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, Weeby calls Billy Mitchell, leaves him a voicemail, Letting him know, hey, I'm on my way to Fun Spot. We should have a friendly competition while we're there. You know, because I, I, I hope you're coming up to this big championship. It's a big competitive gaming thing. You come to these things. Why don't you come and we'll do a thing? Cool. We then showed Billy delivering a Qbert machine to a woman named Doris Self. She is a charming, lovely little woman who I suspect has an edge to her. I think she drinks and smokes. <laughs> she certainly seems more onto Billy Mitchell than all of the other people in his coterie. Oh yeah, yeah. She knows that that Billy is maybe. I think she knows that Billy is maybe not the best guy. He may be a bit underhanded, but she respects it. 
yeah, she certainly talks about him like he's a, a more like more devious than a lot of other people who are on his side try and portray him. They try and portray him more of a, more as a just this brilliant genius, where she seems to see his more Machiavellian tendencies. And I and I think that she is as an individual more removed from this hardcore group at the center of the Twin Galaxies universe, right? Yes. She's just an old lady who's good at Cuba. Right. And so I, I think with that distance and some of that lack of investment, uh, she gets to have that perspective. Her destiny isn't tied to the success of Billy Mitchell and the yeah. idea of Billy Mitchell being this all-American good guy hero as everyone else is. So she can be a little more honest about it. She's got less to lose. Um, but she cuts a deal with Billy for this Qbert machine that he's delivering. She's going to cut out some of her bad habits, I'm assuming drinking and smoking, in exchange for the machine so that she can then go to compete for the world record at this Fun Spot event. Now, back to Brian Koo at Fun Spot. He starts to go into the details of the specific Donkey Kong machine that lives there which some people think is haunted. It's known for being particularly random and hard to play, and we get to see him going around fun spots some more and saying, oh, I'm looking forward to this Steve Weeby guy showing up, expressing no shortage of doubt about his skills. And so Weeby does show up and starts playing, and the film suggests that Koo has spotted him very, very quickly upon his revival, his arrival at the, the arcade and has yeah. plans to watch him perform. Now, we get some more talking up the challenge of it from Koo as, as he's playing, as, as uh, Weeby's playing. And then Koo goes and calls the teacher. He reports back to the dick at home, uh, calling Billy Mitchell and informing him that Weeby's there. And then calling again to provide an update on Weeby's performance, saying that he scored 520,000 points on his first man. I bet Brian Koo felt like a spy when he did this. Oh, he I bet. He felt like a secret agent. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, some James Bond shit he's doing here. Totally. Yeah. He's more like the shitty informant in Moz Eisley. <laughs> and so uh, when, it, when it comes time for player two, uh, Brian joins... Weeby in the game and takes a turn and he scores 220,000 points. It's actually it's very similar in a lot of ways. You could draw a comparison to when uh, Billy Mitchell met Steve Sanders back in uh, in 82. Maybe that maybe he collects okay Donkey Kong players like good Donkey Kong players to again ensure there's always a gulf between he and them but they they hang around. Yeah. Yeah. They hang around in the hopes that they will learn his secrets and become the next Billy Mitchell. Like, he'll pass down his legacy to them. Yeah. But they're always just... It's always a carrot that's just dangled in front of them. I'm reading far too much into it, but I I like to imagine Brian Koo is being strung along in the hopes that, you know, Valhalla awaits. Back in Florida, we see Billy Mitchell sending Doris off at the airport. Yes. And he gives her a videotape to deliver to Walter Day at the Fun Spot event. Now, uh, you, you, I believe, have some particular fondness for, for this scene. I love, 
I love this scene because of what comes up very soon after it. It might not be the immediate scene after, but it's very close. First of all, the initial scene is pure, like it's premium Billy Mitchell. As he tells the old lady, a very old lady, uh, that she can lose her luggage, but she cannot lose the VHS tape that she's got to deliver to the arcade. And he is playing it for the camera. Huge. Yeah, he's being very, you know, he's Billy Mitchell. Yep. He's being very Billy Mitchell about it. So he's like, you can lose your luggage, but you can't lose this tape. Okay? Uh, and that's what he tells her. And that's funny, because that's just pure Billy. A little bit later... Yeah, well, just, Brian keep, just keep that in your mind. Just just yeah. remember that that's what he wanted Dora... He, he, the, the severity with which... This, this is how important this is. This is how important is. it is. It's more important than an old lady's luggage. That's right. So, Steve Weeby continues to play well. And others show up to watch, including that lovable Greg Bond, the Mappy champion. God bless him. Yes. Uh, he gets to 870,000 points and within range of what's called the kill screen. So at this point, the film gives us an explanation of what the kill screen is. Uh, in, in summation, it means that the memory capacity of the game is, is reached at a certain point on these old arcade machines. And at that point, the game will, will stop. Um, in the case of Donkey Kong, well, in, in like in Pac-Man, I think it's stage 256 and half the board is just gibberish characters and you, it's playable to a point, but yes, there is a very good Pac-Man game that you can get on, I think most systems called Pac-Man 256, mm-hmm. which is about being chased by the kill screen. You are going up a sort of almost somewhat isometric map. But it's all, you know, Pac-Man-ish. And there are ghosts and power-ups, uh, different types of power-ups, interesting ones, actually. Uh, but, yeah, you're constantly having to move forward across a, an ever-changing map because behind you, the map's being eaten by all of the, the code from the kill screen. It's a fun game, fun little game. Yeah, I'll have to play that because I'm a big fan of these twists on Pac-Man that they've been doing. They always do really good ones. There's something about the Pac-Man formula that has uh, lent itself well to... to reinvention over the years now in the event of the donkey kong kill screen uh what happens there is you're able to play for about five seconds and then it just kills your character and the game ends um yeah kills mario so weeby is 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 playing and ku is is seeing how close he's getting to this kill screen and it's suggested that this feat has never ever been accomplished on the Donkey Kong machine at fun spot. So this is yes, cuz it's possessed right. by by evil ghosts that don't want you to win. And I think at this point there are maybe half a dozen people who have ever or no, no there's 3. Uh or no, the third spot is available. I think yeah, two people have done the Donkey Kong kill screen prior to this point. Something like that. Like it's ridiculously few people have reached this. So it's not like that crazy that, oh, this machine did. Well, I bet there's a fuck ton of Donkey Kong machines no one's ever gotten the kill screen on. Uh, But Ku starts moving through the arcade, telling anyone who will listen that a kill screen is coming. And the film paints this as, and, and this may very well be true, I suspect it probably is, that Ku is doing this for the purposes of increasing the pressure on Steve Weeby and making him fail. I mean, that, that could have been it. I certainly, if I were in that arcade and a kill screen was coming up, I think I'd want to see it. Absolutely. That's so the it's thing. A, it's it is a... an open-to-interpretation thing, because I, I didn't really read a sinister edge into it until 
Brian Koo, you know, rewatching, uh, and I've watched it several times now, Brian Koo became a more devious and, and just a, an unlikable character. Then you see a lot of things people do in a more negative light. But and, and the, like I mean, say, I, I caught more of the buzz of a kill screen coming up. And I guess when I first saw it, I just wanted to see that happen and be like, oh, that's so cool that that's documented. Yeah. But yeah, the crowd, when you watch it, you're like, that is a lot of pressure. It, it is a lot of pressure. And the way that the editing is done, talking about the editing again here, they, they make they make a point to insert portions of Brian Koo talking about how much the pressure can affect somebody. Yeah, yeah. Cut in with scenes of him going and gra- gathering this huge crowd. Now, absolutely, if a kill screen's coming up at an arcade... And you know this is an, it's an arcade known for serving competitive players. Hell yeah, I would think everyone would want to see that, and it makes perfect sense to go tell everybody that it's coming. I, I don't think Brian Koo wouldn't have. I think if Brian Koo hadn't done it, someone else probably would have. Yeah, but it's the level of effort that Brian Koo puts into doing it that raises a question of what his true motivations are it doesn't seem it seems less to be about making sure everyone knows about this cool thing that does maybe preventing this cool thing from actually there is an unusually surreptitious manner in which he tells people it's not like he's near the machine being all like yo come check this shit out everyone which i think is what most people would do in that situation you wouldn't want to shout so much that you disturb games but you'd be like i think you'd be a bit more louder to try and attract more people and i don't know if that's but he just, just sort of sends people over i don't know like, if that's just generally way. a respect thing it might be that too yeah yeah they probably don't want you just yelling out loud but yeah. i just something about it just seems a lot more it's very muted slow. it's very yeah like like he's executing something as opposed to just trying he to draw he's attention a secret agent yeah <laughs> <laughs> secret foreskin <laughs> So, Weeby does reach the kill screen, finishing with a score of 985,600 points, which makes it the highest score ever achieved in public on a Donkey Kong machine. Uh, Brian Koo is then, uh, they then... They then shoot some footage of Brian Koo staring into the middle distance. Just like, like a shell, like he's in shell shock. Oh, uh, you, you've seen Arrested Development, right? I never really got on with no. it. Okay, but you've seen the meme. Hello, darkness, my old friend. Like that sounds a silent slows. It's all that's missing yeah, from this yeah. scene. Uh, he acknowledges that Steve Weeby's become the third person to reach the Donkey Kong kill screen. Uh, Walter Day suggests now there can be no doubt about Weeby's ability. And his score is uploaded to the Twin Galaxies message board as the current top score. Meanwhile, Brian Koo calls Mitchell to deliver a report of the proceedings following Steve Weeby's record-setting yeah. game. And I've, I, we got to point out that when it cuts to Billy Mitchell, he looks haggard. Crestfallen. He looks like he's red-faced. He... He looks more puffy than usual. Like all of the the character, all of the the glamour of Billy Mitchell is stripped, and he really looks like King Lear rotting on a throne. Mm-hmm. And and, and I, the, yeah, he just looks utterly defeated. It's the only time you see it because he soon gets the swag back. But in that moment, it's so 
he looks ill. He looks unwell at the defeat. Like, not just annoyed or upset or, or defeated even. He looks physically sick. Yeah. Like a piece of him has been taken away. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but Doris, Doris to the rescue. Doris delivers the tape that Mitchell had sent uh, to Robert Merchek. And uh, yeah. a pizza party is happening at a lodge somewhere, which uh, Brian Koo has, has arranged. Uh, and now we get to my second favorite. Well, no, now we get to why the line with Doris about losing her luggage is the funniest line in the film. Yes. Because now the punchline comes. That was just the setup. The punchline is Doris hands the tape over to Brian Koo, and Brian Koo, with almost a sense of pride with the importance of his job, says to the camera that Billy Mitchell told him, you can lose your life, but you can't lose this tape. <laughs> Brian Koo's entire, and he's in his 30s, is entirely disposable. Doris, no. no. Her luggage is disposable, but she's got a whole life ahead of her. Brian Koo, nothing. Billy Mitchell values Brian Koo's existence on the same level as an old woman's luggage. Yes, as a suitcase with some clothes in it. That is as important as Brian Koo is. in, And that's, what, again, why I wonder if these protégés of his aren't just worshippers and, sur- like, like, serfs uh, in, like, just, just looking after him, being his hype people, praising him and lifting him up while never being seen as the successors to the throne because their lives are less important than luggage. Yeah. I, I love that line. It's so good because she's so old <laughs> and he's so young <laughs> and his life is nothing compared to hers. No. Yeah. So the video is then uh, also shown at Fun Spot. Uh, seem, it, it's suggested that it's like the next day or something like that. And, and Weeby is playing Donkey Kong again while this is being shown. And the tape reveals that Mitchell has already broken a million points. <gasps> and as it's being watched, Brian Koo is on the phone to Mitchell. Oh, God. Describing it's... repeatedly how everybody's there to see it. Oh, you can't believe how big this crowd is. Oh, nobody's going to miss this. They're all... It is sickening. He's just stroking. He's just stroking the part that he should be covering as foreskin. Yeah. Just stroking. And again, Billy Mitchell is uh, he, he more and more relief mm-hmm. from his symptoms and, and relief in general as, as Brian Koo exquisitely details how much everyone is paying attention and how all eyes are on Billy again. But this is where the, the documentarians sort of f- first lay the seeds of doubt, lay some suspicion in there because the, the cameraman zooms in on a corner of the screen where the the high score is and notes a tracking distortion in the video. Yeah, and it's quite significant. I mean, it it covers the entire score. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is... But it is one of those things where it's hard to be like, is that really something illegitimate? And again, for the rewatch bonus, this is the tape that got Billy Mitchell caught. 
But it wasn't about that. Well, it no, wasn't I, about I don't the, think, the covered score. I don't think this is the tape that got Billy. You don't think it was the... Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought it was the tape, I think but it was I like they had the right tape, but for the wrong reasons, the movie Yeah, it's out. it's a later tape. Um, okay. When uh, Mitchell, I think, retakes the record in 2010, very briefly. Um, and it's during that time. And, and he and Steve Sanders do this sort of like press conference appearance thing where they're showing... Uh, he also took the Donkey Kong Jr. score back at the same time. And so they had right. two TVs up showing the footage on the TVs there. And it's that tape that he uh, ultimately oh, got see. caught out on. But this one has since been debunked also. Ah, there we are. That might have been what I... Uh... Yeah. But it's... Yeah. Um, the the film, you know, the film focuses in on this tracking error and then cuts to Mitchell who is listening to Brian Koo talk about all of these people watching and compares the attention that he's getting favorably to Helen of Troy. Oh, yes. Helen of Troy never got that much publicity. She did. She, she totally did. I mean, well, he's true. she never did get that much publicity. She got significantly more. She had a big horse made. I mean, she didn't have it made, but it was made because of her. And I just had a horrifying thought, like a really horrifying thought that I can express in three words. Billy Mitchell, uh, 2020. Uh, like, do you see the comparison now, now that we're thinking about it? Yeah. Holy crap. Gross. Now I feel, now I feel greasy. So Weeby asks to watch this tape. At once he's done playing his Donkey Kong. But Koo says, oh, yes. no, no, one time viewing. It was only going to be shown once, one time. That was my, that's my least favorite line in the movie because it's so... Petty? It's wormish. Yeah. It's wormish. I, again, he's a liar. It had been shown twice by that point. Yep. Once at the lodge, once at the arcade. So it wasn't a one-time viewing. It was a two-time viewing and therefore could have been shown more times. And it's just the... The slimy way he does it. It's so weak and toothless and and slimy. And he's nervous as he does it. Like, just one one time showing. Yep. Uh, Shuffling his like, feet a little bit. Yeah. The twisting of his torso. Because he knows what he's he doing knows is bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's just so... I hate it. It's so spineless, that, that line. It's delivered spinelessly. It's a spineless phrase. It's wrong. It's a lie. It's a lie. He is a. I hate that line. I hate that. It's it, that line, like the luggage line, is premium Billy Mitchell. This, this, ah, uh, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. weak limp excuse is premium Brian Koo. Walter Day gets on the phone with Billy Mitchell, trying to confirm if he is officially submitting this tape because the it was suggested that prior to. Uh, Steve Wiebe having broken the score, this was just going to be for fun. This was just going to be Billy Mitchell showing off, and he wasn't actually going to be submitting the tape for consideration as a new high score. But now that Wiebe has done this performance, he wants it submitted. And Day raises a concern about that tracking distortion, uh, but it's written off, and, and quite reasonably as being a copy you know these tapes get reused and reused and reused all the time and that means that 
your original tape could have some distortion. The tape that you're copying onto could have some problems too. And they, you know, they get worse with every copy. So, yeah, this is how recording used to work yeah. for our younger listeners. Yeah, it's not like now where everything's digital. Uh, the it was recorded mag- magnetically on tapes, and and that was, yeah, yeah. There were there was much more exposure to uh, elements with them. Uh, the tapes would get fucked. They, basically, they get well. They got wore out. And they were worn out far faster than than you know other forms of magnetic medium because of the way they were designed on a reel. Yeah. Um, so it's that's that's understandable, frankly, that 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 happened. Uh, yeah, I've had videotapes with worse issues than that. Sure. Uh, so there's some discussion of the rigors of what goes into validating one of these performances, and and it's suggested by people in the arcade that it should take about a week and a half to thoroughly vet out one of these recordings and and confirm it's legitimate. And then we get a title card that reads, 10 seconds later, <laughs> and Walter Day is shown on the phone with Billy, accepting the score, going into the back room at Fun, Stop, Fun Spot, and updating the Twin Galaxies website, uh, taking Weeby from his, stop, his top position. Yeah. And it's, it, everything about it is dodgy. Mm-hmm. It, is unne- it is undeniably dodgy. He's on the phone with the the alleged record holder putting it in and letting him know like that. That's weird. It is. And I don't know if there's any malice in Walter Day. I, I rather think he just convinced himself it was all right in this instance, probably convinced himself, you know, Billy's trustworthy and everything, but ultimately he, uh, it just, it benefits, it benefits them to have a celebrity, a personality like Billy Mitchell yes. as the record holder, as the face of the brand. The status quo as it existed before other people came for the title worked to everyone's benefit. Yes. And I think that made it... I, I won't necessarily say it was, you know, that Walter Day was being surreptitious deliberately or, or engaging in skullduggery, but... I have my doubts it probably as to made whether it or not easier. Walter Day is capable of malice. Yeah, well, my my wife spoke to him a couple of years back. They used to, uh, they had some dialogue. I don't know if it was about music, because, you know, my wife loves music, so I don't know if she'd ever speak to him about music. But uh, he seems like a decent, like a nice man. Yeah, very nice man. And I just think maybe it was just easier to overlook some things if it kept <laughs> Billy Mitchell on top. Yeah, yeah, I, I, that's, and and in fairness, there was a benefit to to. Not doing your diligence. Yes, and in fairness to uh, to Walter Day and Twin Galaxies at that time, um, something that the filmmakers did not opt to include in the documentary is that within forty eight hours, this score was taken down. And there we go. There's there's um, this. You you find out a lot about that. Like you you think something is a lot worse than it is. Yeah. Or at least you don't see the rectification of things. Yes. Well, that's that's true of our current news climate and social media and things like that, yeah. and how it's so yeah. easy for uh, false information to perpetuate uh, because we never get the follow up, you know. And it's the same same kind of thing here. Now, I mean, does that excuse them doing it in the first place? Probably not. Uh, but at least there was some reconsideration that was made and an effort to uh, to resolve it the way it should have been in the yeah. first place. Um, 
Weeby is understandably disappointed that Billy's tape was accepted after all of the pressure that he was put on to uh, put under to yeah. go perform it live and how his tape and they make sure taken. you know they made sure to have Billy Mitchell on record many times saying that you got to do it live to really prove yourself yeah and this is where they really start ramping up the Billy Mitchell doesn't want to play Steve Weeby live but again we what we, we talk about backstory. They had competitively played against each other in a live environment before this. Yeah, a couple of event. years prior, um, they they had they had done a an event where they both competed um, playing Donkey Kong. Um, this, this it was not it was not necessarily a matter of uh, Mitchell and Weeby not meeting up. I think because of Mitchell. I think it's actually more to do with Roy Schilt. Um, and that's kind of what Twin Galaxies' stance on it seems to be, is that, you know, th- this was fine until Roy Schilt got involved. And yeah. then Mitchell just didn't want to have anything to do with Roy Schilt. So uh, there's a bit of that taint there, maybe. But um, nine months pass. Steve Weeby has been focused on day-to-day life stuff. Walter Day reflects upon his time as the scorekeeper. And expresses that he's ready to hang it up and focus on his true love of uh, music. Yes. I'm going to pursue his music career. So, okay. He plays a little bit. Um, hmm. So it seems, it seems a little cruel, actually. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I thought you were just going to launch into the next bit of the movie. Yeah, no... Billy Mitchell uh, then goes on to be a dick. Uh, uh, not not about Walter's music. No, not about his music, but about uh, about what his initials are on high score leaderboards. Oh yes, <laughs> um, he's tugging on his tie and and you know non in a non subtle fashion and being like, huh, huh, huh? You gotta figure it out. How clever am I? You gotta figure yeah. it out. What do you know about me? What do you know about me more than anything? What am I? And he's, yeah, playing with his, his patriotic tie. Um, but the funny thing is, before he starts tugging on the tie, I thought he was going to say that when he says, what do you know about me and all this stuff? I thought his initials were G-O-D. Because <laughs> he says, like, you know, what do you think about me? And I think, well, you probably think you're God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, no, his initials are USA, because in his words, got to keep America on top. Right. Uh, and there's... Some there's been some you know uh, like oh god what a nationalist prick blah 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 and you know and I think that that's a that's a thing that's looks worse now than it did then and I think the reasoning for it he has a reasoning a story that isn't really gone into in any depth here I think they discuss it in Chasing Ghosts actually um, but but in the interest of fairness to Billy Mitchell. Uh, Apparently, it comes from a dispute he used to have with some Canadian competitive gamers, or a rivalry he had with them. Uh, yeah. And and he always had, so he would always thumb at the Canadian rivalry by using USA. Uh, and that's a fun story. It's like, yeah. I, I don't know whether he ever told that for the, the people making King of Kong, and they just chose not to use it. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, that, that this scene, again, is one of those ones that make the documentary interesting, once you know that story. Because at the, while the movie can be criticised for maybe mischaracterising Billy Mitchell a bit, right. he still chose to explain his USA story in that fashion. Right. 
with the arrogant tugging on the tie and I'll make you say it. Uh, because, you know, I'm just so famous and well-known for all of my things that I don't have to explain myself. Um, that was all Billy. That scene was still Billy saying those things. He's the one in the movie comparing himself to the abortion issue. He's the one comparing himself favourably to Helen of Troy. Uh, the movie can edit a lot and make you look worse than you are, but when you have a, a raw scene of just you, you are still responsible for the things coming out of your mouth and billy mitchell comes across as a dick you still have to provide them with the material on some level yes and uh whether it's because you you know it would be one thing if there was any sense that these were moments of vulnerability you know that he'd let the shield down and exposed who he is but there's too many instances of him being an arrogant prick yeah, and and if, if anything, when we do see him in a vulnerable stage, it's uh, it's not it's on that. the phone with Koo and stuff like that. It's, yeah, it's more you know it looks like jealous guarding of of his titles. You know, mm-hmm. Walter Day gets a call from the Guinness World Records people about becoming the official record keeping source for video game scores in the Guinness World Book of World Records. Uh, so Walter Day. Ever the opportunist transitions this opportunity into a contest where people are going to gather in Hollywood, Florida and make one last go at getting into the record book uh, before they send the scores off to Guinness. And Steve Wiebe is tempted by the producers of the film, it seems, into traveling there to compete and, and get into the book. Uh, and so that, that brings us to sort of Eye of the Tiger time here. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the film begins to hype us up for that final showdown between Mitchell and Weeby. Uh, Weeby heads to Hollywood, Florida, takes the whole family this time. It's not just him flying out. Uh, they, they seem to drive cross-country, um, judging by the footage, although hard to tell. Yeah. Uh, and then that, they have that poignant line in the car with the Steve Weeby's daughter. Right, his daughter knows that, you know... It, they're talking about Guinness and what it means to be in Guinness. And his daughter says some people ruin their lives trying to get into the book. And it just hangs there. It just sits. It just hangs there. Yeah. It's like a, and, like a bad you know, fart. With everything we've seen of Steve Wiebe up to that point and the, the faint praise that his wife and friends give him throughout, it it, it certainly portrays a, a kind of a pitiful picture of Steve Wiebe. Yeah. I don't know if they were trying to go for sympathetic, but with his daughter, just she looks like she's cottoned onto something darker. Right. And the fact it just stays there like in this, the silence. This is affecting my family in some way, and I can't yeah. identify how necessarily. But, yeah, th- this is the cause. Donkey Kong is the cause. Um, at the tournament, we're uh, briefly treated to Mark Alpinger, uh, you, you mentioned him previously. I mention him now because the, the description underneath him, uh, he's a champion of Crystal Castles in the foot category, and I think it's important <laughs> to understand the sort of breadth and depth of this scoring leaderboard stuff in that there are categories for high scores where people achieved it using their foot. Um, that's no judgment there. 
that's just what it is. Uh, but Alpinger also yeah. talks about the fingerless glove that he uses because uh, he plays a lot of trackball games. And so he has this fingerless glove. It's, uh, it's like a tennis glove. Yeah. Um, and, and he uses that or a racquetball glove. Where, you know, just... I find that interesting because I, like, I guess it doesn't count as a performance enhancer. Boy, if you're into that, I, I, every time you say something that interests you, I just, I'm like, God, I can't wait for us to watch Chasing Ghosts because you will see some real ingenuity. Oh, wow. Okay. In things that people did uh, for some of these games. It's really fascinating. Um, Steve Sanders is in Hollywood, Florida as well, and he spends a lot of time with Steve Wiebe. Uh, the two Steves developing respect for one another, um, and and Sanders in particular seeming to you know, uh, develop almost a friendship of his own. He seems to like him, yeah. yeah with Wiebe. Uh, despite the fact that he's competing against his best friend. It's like there's a, a crack in that wall, and, and that's nice. And this is, you know, we, we said before that we, Sanders is perhaps one of the most uh, likable characters, certainly one of the most dynamic. The only one who learns anything. Yeah, who, who, who changes as a person during the course of this exercise in a way that we're, we're visibly able to see. And uh, I, I like this sequence a lot. Um, not bad for a lawyer and a Christian, I gotta say. <laughs> not letting that go. Um, so, despite the hype and a whole bunch of montage, Mitchell doesn't show up at the event until the third day. And he's depicted as ignoring Weeby and, and, and in passing, as he steps away from where Weeby is playing Donkey Kong in the machine, he comments to his wife, that he doesn't like to associate too much with certain people. Yeah. Um, this scene is the one that people point to, I think, most frequently when they want to raise the issue of Billy Mitchell being dismissive of Weeby, uh, rude to Weeby, having some sort of grudge with Weeby. And, uh... I mean, it's a... Taken at face value... It is an awkward and scene that makes Billy Mitchell look shit. Yes, absolutely. And that's but that's the problem with this is that this scene in particular is one that I think you can't can't totally take at face value. And the reason you can't is that Billy Mitchell's mic'd up. Mm -hmm. He's wearing a microphone. He came into that place. Then he knew they were shooting the documentary. He allowed himself to be mic'd up. And then that's the only thing he does. I'm sorry, I can't. I can't possibly believe that. I'm. I, it's much more believable to me, uh, Billy Mitchell's version of events, in which he saw Weeby. You know, said uh, Weeby said hello. We see Weeby saying hello to him in the film. They talk for yeah. very, very briefly. They talk. You know, it's not like they're having a big conversation or anything. Yeah. And then he leaves, not wanting, and he says, not wanting to distract from his game. Which I 100% believe that. And I think viewed from that perspective, viewed in that perspective with that context, the manner in which Billy Mitchell says this to his wife, I think bears that out in a lot of ways. It's. Mm, yeah, yeah, it can make, yeah, it lines, it still lines up whether you want to take the shitty or the, you know, or, or the version. more charitable like, view. It, yeah. 
Yeah, it lines up with with either one, and, and so, however you want to take what he says. I am I am inclined to side with with Mitchell on this particular one because it is so sharp and so like counter to how someone would behave in public, as opposed to how someone would behave, you know, on camera in their hot sauce, for, you know, restaurant or whatever. Yeah, uh, it just it never sat well with me and. And, and I'm still that if I'm going to put a black mark on the documentarians for being misleading, I, I almost feel like this is it. Now, they're doing it in the interest of telling a good story. And this is a good story. But, yeah, this is the one where it feels shady to me. Um, at least in a way that affects people. Right. So Weeby does not succeed in breaking his record uh, or breaking the record here. And after the event, and after comparison, comparing uh, himself to a king with advisors and all of this, I mean, these people are so silly sometimes, but Walter Day brings Steve Wiebe, mispronouncing his name as so many people do. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, I like this scene because you see Walter Day called Steve Wiebe, Steve Wiebe, mm-hmm. a lot in the film. Yes. And Wiebe always lets it go. Yeah. And then at this moment when he's kind of hacked off with everything that's happened, he finally just, for that one moment of recognition, he's like, no, you're going to say Steve Wiebe, so he corrects him. Yep. And uh, he brings him up in front of the crowd specifically to try and make him feel like the past is the past regarding the controversy over his prior video submission. Um, Cut to Billy Mitchell's restaurant in a booth where Sanders is uh, sitting next to him sitting next to Billy Mitchell, and expressing admiration for, for Weeby. And uh, and this is the moment where we, we really see Steve finish his arc. And so, you know what? This is a good guy. And, you know, there was some bad blood, but it's, you know, he's a decent dude, and I respect him, and that's appreciated. And then when asked if he agrees, Mitchell says, I'm not familiar enough with the situation. Yeah. And again, this is one of those scenes where a movie can take away all your positives and accentuate your negatives and make you look far worse. But there are certain moments where you do give give up the material. And here, Billy Mitchell had that chance to look like the better man. To be charitable. Yeah. Yeah. And he didn't take it. And And not only that, there's no denying the shitty look he gives uh, Steve Sanders when he has praise for... Well, and and it goes the other direction too. Steve is deeply uncomfortable in 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 his face when Mitchell expresses this. Uh, yeah, he's just like I, almost shocked that he can't have a nice thing to say. I um, mean, even if it's just a perfunctory nice thing to say, it doesn't have to be. But I'm not familiar enough with this, dude. You're at the fucking center of this. Yeah, you are the situation. Right. Uh, Steve Wiebe seems to have come out okay in all of this. You know, he's got his family, he's got his job, he's gotten the respect and and dignity that was stripped from him most of his life. Life's going to be okay for Steve Wiebe. How about some closing credits and and some some after the documentary information? Um, Steve Wiebe continues to play. 
Billy's, Billy Mitchell's score was uh, ultimately submitted to Guinness. Now, this would not be the one on the tape there. I think it's uh, another score. It wasn't uh, a million point score. It was something like 960,000 or something like that. Uh, or that, that was on the tape. On the tape, it hadn't broken a million yet. Right. Um, so, uh, but then after, after that, there's a break in the music. And a big word, but, appears on the screen to reveal that Steve Wiebe did wind up beating Billy Mitchell's score to take the top position on August 3rd, 2006, which gave him the top scores for both live and taped play. Following up on everybody else in the story, Robert Merchek, he resigned as the head referee during the filming of the documentary sometime after the Fun Spot tournament, but before the Guinness attempt. Uh, Walter Day went on to work on his first album and uh, a book about Twin Galaxies. Brian Koo still hadn't gotten a hill screen by the time of release. Uh, Doris Self continued to play Hubert, uh, but there's a, a sad note even at that because uh, things things changed. By the time they released the film into theaters, Doris Self had passed away and they dedicated the yeah. film to her. Um, Steve Sanders continues to play Joust and build his legal practice in, I believe, Salt Lake City. And uh, Roy Schilt continues to fight for his Missile Command score to be accepted. So that's how things end with the King of Kong. Yeah. Um, but. But there is a lot more to We add our own but. Yeah. After the credits. Yeah. You did digging and found out a little bit of what they some of the players have been up to. Yeah. So after the film released, uh, a lot of the major figures associated with Twin Galaxies who made appearances uh, raised some issues with the film. Specifically, uh, Day... Mitchell, Merchek, and Sanders all consider it to be a work of fiction in varying degrees. Now, uh, Walter Day, shortly after the film came out, published a series of posts in 2007 uh, addressing five things that he believes to have been misrepresented by the film. Uh, we've gone over a, a fair bit of this already. The visit to Steve Wiebe's house, uh, he feels, was misrepresented uh, uh, in that you know Brian Koo was just on his way to ground control. That's a little sketchy and weird to me. Um, the suggestion that Billy Mitchell would never play Steve Wiebe in public. And, and as we said, they'd, they'd done that, I think, in 2005. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the fact that Wiebe actually did hold the record for a two-year period um, and, and, and a period during which this documentary was being shot. He already had the record. But because it's better for the story, um, it was suggested they didn't have it. They just left that detail yeah. out. Um, he also had, I mean, he had the record when he got that first million point score that wasn't accepted and that the Mitchell tape was only on Twin Galaxies for 48 hours before the action was reconsidered. So there's some dispute and, and I think some fair, uh, criticism of the film, uh, in there. Uh, but in the months leading up to the release of the film, thanks to some media blitzes and the film's performance at Sundance, there's a broadening of the field in competitors for the Donkey Kong top score. And around the time of theatrical release, Twin Galaxies implemented new stricter policies on the submissions, requiring them to be performed in the presence of an authorized referee. 
Um, now, this is important for a few reasons that we, you know, or significant for a few reasons that we'll get into. But I mean, quite clearly, that the big effect is that it freezes out all but a few people. Um, yeah. People who have direct access to Twin Galaxies, like uh, Steve Wiebe and, and 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 Bill Mitchell, they would be able to perform scores, you know, runs and things like that fairly easily. But uh, others would not, and and that includes these new people who are all coming in. So it, it feels like perpetuating the status quo again in a lot of ways. But yeah. but at the same time, it's a decision I can completely understand. Uh, this is an organization that is shoestring. They're very, very small. It's a volunteer force. Uh, the qualifications required to be the sort of person to like address the verification on these, there's... It, it, it's so burdensome. The thought that they could be receiving hundreds of tapes all of a sudden for Donkey yeah. Kong scores. Uh, I get it. It's it's one of those things that seems shitty. It looks it looks dodgy, but then when you think about it, like the that you can understand the reasoning. Right. It it, it is still shitty, um, and it persists for about two yeah. years. Uh, two years, two months, I think. Um, and and stops. Shortly before uh, Walter Day resigns from Twin Galaxies, which happened in 2010, he continued some form of association, at, at least for a little while, uh, producing Twin Galaxies-themed trading cards. Oh, yes. They are brilliant. They are amazing. Uh, please do yourself a service and Google, Google image search Twin Galaxies trading cards. You will not be disappointed. He's not wrong. Uh, these still pop up on eBay. Uh, Walter Day uh, still puts these up for sale on eBay from time to time. Brilliant. Um, and the company changes hands a few times in the intervening years uh, before it gets purchased by esports guy Jace Hall. Jace Hall, I mean, is he's been around and done tons of shit. Um, I, I didn't realize this. He was the showrunner, I believe, on the reboot of V a few years ago. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. I liked that. That's one of those rare instances where I think the reboot is is probably better than the original. Battlestar Galactica, too. That's another example of that. I love the Battlestar Galactica redo. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so after Jace Hall acquires Twin Galaxies, they implement a new system for challenging scores that are already in the system. And this results in a wave of claims over scores long thought to be illegitimate, but possibly protected by the old guard at Twin Galaxies. Uh... And this includes challenges to Billy Mitchell's uh, latest Donkey Kong tape, which I believe was a a 2010 record. Now... The evidence that was brought to light suggested that the the video that Mitchell submitted was not gameplay from an official Donkey Kong cabinet board, but rather MAME emulation. And without getting too into the weeds, because I am not technically knowledgeable enough to do that, uh, but you can you can find footage of this. Um, there's a really great video that was released, I believe, in, in February that sort of shows, breaks down how, how all of this works uh but the idea is is that visual elements on the screen 
are loaded in a different sequence in MAME versus the arcade cabinet. And so if you frame by frame it, you can see this difference. And this has, has resulted uh, in a whole you know, shitstorm. Uh, Mitchell does maintain that his original taped recording is legitimate. And he's questioned the authenticity of the footage that was used to claim otherwise. Uh, quite, quite understandably, the person who produced this footage has come back and said, uh, do you know how much work that would be? Yeah. And, and he's right. It would be an impossible task. Um, you'd need to, you'd need a science team. Yeah. Speaking, speaking, recreate speaking as a dude who has done some, a fair bit of video editing to get that footage and then stitch it together in a way that's believable. Uh, and, and, and especially understanding that whatever you produce in this sense is going to be scrutinized to the nth degree by these hardcore people. Yeah, not just the hardcore, like, you know, it'll go online now and people will be able to pour over it. Right. That's, it just, it wouldn't happen. <laughs> it's just outside the realm of possibility. I, I firmly believe that uh, this guy's assessment is correct, but he... Mitchell says he has a tape, and the original tape vindicate, will vindicate him. Um, last month, he hadn't been vindicated, and all of Mitchell's scores uh, for his Pac-Man, his Donkey Kong, his Donkey Kong Jr., everything was removed from, from Twin Galaxies, citing that it was clear uh, that at least his Donkey Kong scores were not achieved following the submission rules because they were not done on original hardware. Um, the Red Baron shot actual planes that are up in the air. Right. That's the difference. Now, interestingly, there is a, another story, uh, another eh, fun connection uh, that I found as, as, as I was digging around in this. Uh, Mitchell has beaten Steve Wiebe's public record as well, um, interestingly. And he did this at the Florida Association of Mortgage Brokers Convention in 2007. <laughs> Uh, this was an officially recognized performance uh, because it was, it, while it was done during the time of the new restrictions that limited uh, people who could participate, this attempt was per performed by then-referee Todd Rogers, who is also known as Mr. Activision. Now, we do see Todd Rogers very, very briefly in uh, King of Kong. Uh, he, he get, we get a whole lot more of Todd Rogers in Chasing Ghosts. Mm -hmm. And wow. Just wow. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, I'm excited for you to learn more about Robert Merchek. But if you want the sad sack story, it's, it's Todd Rogers. And it doesn't get any better for poor Todd Rogers because um, uh, he also, uh, as suggested by his name, Mr. Activision, he was probably the most prolific high score achiever on Activision games on the Atari 2600. And uh, his records, too, have been struck. Uh, they went first. That happened in, uh, in January because it was determined that, and, and apparently people had done this research a long time ago, but whether it was the system doing its magic or what, it wasn't addressed. But his scores for the game's dragster 
and Barnstormer were found to be literally impossible to achieve on a technical level. Uh, wow. And just to explain a little bit about how that works, the way Barnstormer is played, both of these games are time-based challenges. You know, you need to get from one side of the screen to the other in as short a time as possible. And in Barnstormer, you're avoiding obstacles like flying birds, and you want to fly through the uh, barns on the ground to score additional points. But every time you move, you're slowed down very, very briefly for like, you know, a third of a second or whatever. And so you want to move as little as possible while still avoiding all the obstacles and passing through the barns. That's the way it works. Right. If you remove all of the obstacles from Barnstormer and just allow the plane to fly straight through and therefore never have its speed reduced, you still cannot achieve the speed that Todd Rogers accomplished in his record. Oh, Mr. Activision. Living up to his name, at least. And, yeah, so that's his records were struck. He was the referee who watched Billy Mitchell complete his uh, his live play. That would have to be called into question now as well. Well, yeah. Um, the, the 2010 attempt that, that Mitchell had, had claimed to have done, there... There's no real released footage of him where he's seen on screen playing it either. There's this weird fucking video where a guy he's with is helping him exchange out the PCB, the the, the motherboard, in a Donkey Kong Jr. machine, saying that you know they'd had Donkey Kong in there and he'd just beaten the Donkey Kong record, and now they're going to swap it out for a Donkey Kong Jr. board and he's going to attempt to break that record. And eagle-eyed viewers, because, again, you can't leave fuck-ups on the internet. People will see them. They made the observation that, no, this is clearly staged because the board that they're taking out of the Donkey Kong Jr. cabinet is a Donkey Kong Jr. board. And the board that they're putting back in is another Donkey Kong Jr. board. (laughs) They are distinct. And I know this now because, and I'm always going to know this now. So, and maybe you'll always know this now. Donkey, the difference that's most easily recognizable is that Donkey Kong Jr. boards have text written in banana yellow, uh, and Donkey Kong boards have know. it in white. There's also like one less chip in an area of the board that it should be fairly obvious to people. But yeah, that's so. The story continues on. Um, there's. Uh, these people are still out there. They're still doing their things. Um, Brian Koo, that's the other one, our, our favorite mm-hmm. piece of foreskin. We can't, we can't not tell this. Uh, this, is, this is fantastic. Brian Koo is still hanging out in arcades in New Hampshire, uh, and as of, at least as of 2016. Uh, and, and I guess during the season, um, working in these arcades, and he... <sighs> There was a discussion on a forum, on the Twin Galaxies forum, about this achievement that Brian Koo made working a 111-hour work week at this arcade. And it was just such an accomplishment, such an achievement, that Walter Day suggested, and then did, put the paycheck that Brian Koo earned for working in this arcade for 111 hours, this check for... Six hundred and forty-seven dollars, I think, and some change for 111 hours of work, 
And mm-hmm. and if you think that's horrendous and and possibly even illegal, uh, in the event you you maybe don't know everything about New Hampshire minimum yeah. wage. If you meet Brian Coo and you think you can get him to do some work for you, the the, the minimum wage in 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 New Hampshire is above that. But the minimum wage law doesn't apply to seasonal workers. So that's how they managed to screw Brian Koo out of a proper paycheck. Uh, nobody bid. And then nobody bid. He went and told us. Nobody bid on that, that, that paycheck yeah. on eBay. Uh, they did start. Which bidding. is a shame because he, he probably tried to see if it would be more valuable than the actual number written. Yeah, on well, the no, paper. he did. The bidding started at the, the face value of the check. It'll only go up from here, he said. Well, they'd have had to, you know, I guess whoever wanted to buy the check or, or, you know, just decided it wasn't worth the cost of shipping. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because, like, like, this is the the modern age. If the guy wanted to, you know, if you could get him to sign the back of the check and endorse it for you, you could take a photo of it and deposit it into your bank account get the value back, and then frame it and still have the memento. Uh... Like, nobody wants your paycheck, Brian Koo. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a weird thing to sell. It is. It's bizarre. But, but it's, again, it's Walter Day seeing history being made all around him. And because it's this tiny little, like, quarter of the world that he is a player in and passionate about... You know, because he sees significance in it, I think he thinks that the world will see significance in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and in a way, I mean, we did just have a, a conversation about it that is now committed to digital audio. Twice we've committed conversations about well, digital audio. <laughs> well, fingers crossed we, we'll have committed it once. Right. Yes. It was the committing it that was the issue because of it issues... Uh, all of the time, but uh, we they got two hours of this, yeah, and they they should feel pretty good about it. I think it was a I think it was better than the attempt we yeah, had. Yeah, I think this actually. was tighter. Yeah, yeah, tighter, tighter. Um, so the, so that's it, really. I don't I normally ask you whether you liked it or not. I mean, not, I do like this King movie. Kong, yeah. I think this is I I it is a it's a well made documentary made by people who know how to make a documentary. Yeah, uh, it yeah. does craft a narrative and maybe aspect. The face value narrative is good. Yeah. They they told a good story, but then the movie itself becomes an interesting story as well. Right, and then Billy Mitchell's history after this makes it even more of an intriguing watch. It's a movie that has a lot of rewatch potential, a lot of value. Well, and I think there's a, still a future to come. Um, now there was some discussion. Uh, Shortly after the film came out, about them pursuing a uh, a feature film based on the story, uh, with actors and you know performances and all of that. Um, in more recent years, it's been suggested that this may be a musical. <laughs> and <laughs> get that folk singer back. And, and with the developments uh, in the story that have happened in recent days and months and so forth, I would fully expect an expansion of the story to be present in any such endeavor. So I, yeah, I kind of hope they pursue it. Uh, Seth Gordon, as I said, they, he owns Billy Mitchell's life rights, so <laughs> uh, could happen. I think I think it would be an interesting thing to see, and I and I would watch it if it if it did 
come to pass. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's a a, a really well made documentary that if you want to take it at face value as the narrative does its job, if you want to sort of question some of it, you can do that too. There's a little something in it for everybody. And, uh, and a good film about really interesting people. If you don't mind them being interesting, I guess like they're strange. And if you can find that curiosity attractive, I think you can have a really good time with this movie. Yeah. I mean, it really is just a, a really cool glimpse into that side of of games uh stuff that a lot of people might not even think is all that relevant or or enthralling and it's not necessarily but, but the passion no, that these really. people have for it is a little infectious yes yeah they 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 make you interested even if you think oh i'm not into the retro stuff competitive arcade gaming doesn't seem like my thing they make it interesting the characters that are there yep yep yeah. So what are we doing next it's, it's, time, it's Jim? Good. Uh, what are we doing next time? Jumanji, 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 Jumanji. That's how the cartoon went. Had a, an intro theme that went Jumanji, Jumanji, Jumanji. It, it was a cartoon in the nineties. Uh, yeah, I was a little too old, I think, by the time Jumanji wow. came around. I, I actually, I've had a cartoon. I've never seen the original film in its uh, oh. entirety. I've, I've seen it. I did many years ago. Channel flipping on TV, and it's like, oh, that's what this is. Okay, and then just didn't stick it out. Yeah. Um, but, but we're not watching the, the Robin Williams Jumanji, because that's based on a board game. That'd be ridiculous. <laughs> that's absurd. Silly man. Now, we're doing the new one, which is based on video games, you see. Yep. Uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who is almost always a good time. Uh, Jack Black, who I... I f- He's a giggle? I... I f- I like him in everything he's in, and uh, I don't watch now. Fair, fair's fair. I don't watch a lot of the big budget stuff he does. Uh, I'm more mm-hmm. into the little weird stuff he picks up on the side, like uh, the Polka King on Netflix. Oh, that's a delight! I've been meaning to see that. Actually. Very, very fun. Very fun. Um, it's if if you've seen Bernie, which was a, I think a Richard Linklater film that he did uh, also. That uh, he plays a funeral director who gets into a relationship with a much older woman and then ultimately kills her. Mm-hmm. It's based on true story also. Uh, that's really worth watching. So I'm a big Jack Black fan. Looking forward to Jumanji. Uh, should be fun. It's one of the highest rated video game movies of all time, Justin told me. Uh, like a 50-something on Rotten Tomatoes. Well, well, I think... And they're super excited about that, though. So I think Rampage is going to uh, be the one to have taken that title now. Hearing a lot of positive buzz. Yeah. Yeah, so... But we'll get to Rampage at some point. Uh, until then, we'll have something else from Dwayne The Rock Johnson. First time since Doom. Yeah. Uh, that was a long time Which ago. He, he, we'll also, be doing that. he also shit on Doom not that long ago in a tweet. <laughs> you know, talking about, oh, it's good to finally be in a good one of these. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. So, yeah, uh, apparently it's good. So, Jumanji, starring The Rock, the recent Jumanji, uh, which is pretty much all over the the streaming places uh, if you want to look at them and and we'll be back next time for that and it won't take you know a month and change this time yeah you know it should be within the two weeks sorry about the wait there for this one but hopefully it was worth it uh other than that you can follow conrad uh at, on twitter at conrad zimmerman we do another podcast together fish shark marketing you sit at fistshark.com on the internet or on itunes what have you and uh i think we'll see you next time bye goodbye